start where you're going to say go. We're going live. Well, good morning, everybody. We had a little glitch there, and we're so happy to be worshiping with you this morning. Join with us as we open up with Blessed Be the Name. Blessed be the name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. And blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glory. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. And blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. your name on the road marked with suffering though there's pain in the offering blessed be your name every blessing every blessing you pour out i'll turn back to praise and when the darkness closes in lord still i will say Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. 
blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. And we cry, holy, holy, holy. feet of Jesus, the greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus, and we cry holy, 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 and we cry holy, Be 
my hope, be my song, Jesus. Be the fire in my heart, be the wind in these sails, be the reason that guys so much for sticking around with the technical difficulty there and I just shout out to, to Mark and to Tim for figuring that out really grateful to be here with you this morning um, as some of you know I had a birthday earlier this week and I can feel like I have reached kind of the apex of the hill and I'm sliding quickly it used to be when I was a kid uh, like my dad would tow us behind the boat on these inner tubes and he would get us going so fast that we would then like do gymnastics across the top of the water once you came off. Just skip, 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 skip. And we'd turn around, get right back on and do it five or six more times and the next morning we'd be fine. Now I sleep on a pillow that is not my normal pillow and I'm, I'm debilitated for three or four days afterwards. So if, if you notice today that I'm turning like Batman, no, it's because I slept on a pillow that was not my normal pillow. With that, that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, I just thought you should know. Uh, turn with me to John chapter 1. Grab your Bible, turn there. Uh, we are beginning a journey with Jesus through the gospel of John, which is arguably the most beloved gospel in the Bible. It's the most, one of the most beloved books in the Bible. And we are going to be learning from Jesus' example in our lives. Last week, we covered the first 18 verses, which in a lot of ways operate like John's uh, thesis paragraph. In it, he introduces a whole lot of themes that are going to then run like threads through the rest of his gospel. Things like 
The fact that Jesus wasn't just some good guy that God selected because he was the right guy with the right temperament at the right time. We learn that Jesus was God from the very beginning. And that he didn't just come to redeem the world, but he actually was part and parcel of speaking the world into existence. He was the word that God used to bring about the creation of the world that he would then come to redeem. We also were introduced to this concept of the light and how the light that was embodied in Jesus came crashing into our sin-darkened world and how the world has this tendency to want to resist the light. Many people run from the light because, quite honestly, we want to do our own things and the light exposes that, but that the darkness could never overcome him. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week, I encourage you at some point, go back to our website, lighthousecommunity.com, or go to the YouTube page, which you're on because you're watching it. Unfortunately, we weren't able to figure out the, the Facebook streaming today. But if you're watching it, you can go to last week's and catch up at another point. But today, we are going to continue going into it. And one of the things that we noticed last week, that we skipped over at the time, was that a couple of times in that introduction paragraph, John takes the focus off of Jesus and he puts it over onto Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, who is in many ways a forerunner of Jesus, preparing the way for him. He focused time and energy on John the Baptist, which is really curious as to why he did that. Let's look at those now. We, we skipped over them last week, but let's actually read them this week. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Or skip down to verse 15. John, he's talking about the Baptist here, testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And, and, and you read this and you go, wow, the Apostle John writing this gospel really wants us to know that John the Baptist was not the Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer. He really wants us to know that he was not the light, that he was just pointing people to the light. Why? What's, what's so important that you would interrupt your thesis paragraph to let people know about that? Well, to answer that question, we need to remember something we talked about last week, and that is that when you set out to write something like a gospel, when you set out to tell somebody a story, you need to really take into consideration who it is you're writing to, because your target audience will influence the language you use, will influence the details that you share. For instance, uh, in, math, or in, in Matthew's gospel, he starts out with a genealogy of Jesus because he's talking to Jews, trying to show them that Jesus comes from the house and the line of David. This was important to Jews. And so when he's writing to Jews, he's going to, to explain that. Or when you get into Luke's gospel, for instance, he's writing to Gentiles, and so he begins to explain things that Jews would know automatically, like why they would do all these ceremonial washings. Luke takes the time to explain that, where Matthew, writing to Jews, never would have. And so in the same way, we need to ask ourselves, well, who was John writing to? What in his audience would compel him to want to make it very clear 
that John the Baptist was not the one they were waiting for. He was not the Messiah. He was not the light of the world. To answer that, we need to go back to uh, some history. Because theologians believe that although the Apostle John never comes straight out and says it, they believe that in the city of Ephesus, in this region where John was writing his gospel, there was a strong contingent of people who still looked to John the Baptist as their rabbi, as their teacher, as the one they were following. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, when Paul first shows up to the city of Ephesus, some of the first people he meets in that city are disciples of John the Baptist. There's about 12 of them. They have been baptized by John the Baptist. They believe in that baptism of repentance, but they never heard the name Jesus. And so Paul gets to introduce them to the one that John the Baptist came to point people to. So it seems that there were still people in that region where John is ministering, where he's writing his gospel to, who still look to John the Baptist as their hope. And he's making it very clear from the very beginning, no, the Baptist was never your hope. He was simply the one pointing you to the one who is your hope. And if that wasn't enough, if what he said in his, very, in his introduction wasn't sufficient, he's now going to allow John the Baptist to give his own testimony. So we read now in verse 19. Now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Now that word Messiah is a really important one. Because it means God's anointed redeemer. It comes from this idea that God would... For instance, when, when the prophet Samuel shows up to anoint David to be king over Israel, God has him pour oil over David's head. And that oil was symbolic. It simply was symbolic of the Holy Spirit empowering David to lead God's people. So when we say anointed one, that's what we're talking about. Somebody who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist says, no, I am not your Messiah. Or in Greek, the same word as Christ. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about Christ being his last name. It was a title. God's anointed redeemer. John the Baptist says, I'm not the Messiah. And so they asked him, well then, who are you? Are you Elijah? Now, they're pulling from Scripture back in Malachi, one of the very last prophecies to be written. Can we throw it up on the board? Maybe. Yes, no, maybe so. Otherwise, I can just read it here. Back in Malachi uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Malachi writes this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So they say, are you, Elijah, come back to us to prepare the day of the Lord? And John responds, I'm not. Well, then are you the prophet? Now they're, they're referring to Deuteronomy because Moses himself said in Deuteronomy, Chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from amongst you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. Okay, so you're not Elijah. Are you this prophet that Moses told us to wait for? And he answered, no, 
And finally, they're just kind of like pulling their hair out there. Go, okay, fine. Then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who do you say you are? John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet. I'm just a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. One of the things I really appreciate about the Baptist, he played an integral role in preparing the way for Jesus, but he never lost sight of what his purpose was. His purpose was never to stand in the light and have people focus on him. His purpose was, from the very beginning, to get out of the way and let people focus on Jesus. Later on in, in John's Gospel, we will hear from John the Baptist when he declares, He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. This was always his attitude, always his posture. And everything he does is to take the focus off of himself. No, I'm not the Messiah. No, I'm not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet like Moses that you should look to. I'm simply the one pointing you to the one you should look to. Look to him. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, well, if you're not any of those things, then why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And so he responded, I baptize with water, but amongst you stands one that you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to be a servant to the true Messiah, to the true prophet who you should fix your eyes on. This all happened in Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Well, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God. Here he's referring to the Passover Lamb that would cover the people's sins so that, that the wrath of God would pass over them. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. I saw the Spirit anoint and empower Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So I, John the Baptist, have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is truly the Messiah or the Christ, God's anointed Redeemer, empowered, anointed by the Holy Spirit to do what God sent him to do to redeem his people. So if there was any question, whether it be any question from the Jewish leaders who were coming to interrogate John the Baptist, or any question from John's readers in Ephesus, who looked to John the Baptist as their hope, this should silence all their questions. John is not the hope. John is not the way. He is not the light of the world. Jesus is. Don't look to John. Look to Jesus. But he's not finished yet because he has one more really powerful thing to do to kind of reveal just how much he values Jesus. He's got to give his disciples away. And so we read in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, 
the Lamb of God. This is what I've been talking about. And when those two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. They walked away from John the Baptist and they began to follow Jesus. Obviously, just initially. We're going to get into what happens after that. But I, I want to pull out two things that I think are really important for our understanding of this. The first is a question that I had as I went into reading this. Because we have John recording John the Baptist's testimony. But we know that John the Baptist was actually killed long before Jesus' public ministry was ever completed. Which means he could not go back and ask John the Baptist what his experiences were. Unless he had been an eyewitness. And while John, never, while John the apostle who's writing this gospel never comes out and says that he was one of those two disciples. We know this. We know that um, Andrew is one of those two disciples. We're about to be introduced to him. And we know that the second disciple is never named. We also know that throughout his gospel, John never draws attention to himself. He, the only time he ever refers to himself, he refers to himself kind of in the third person as the one whom Jesus loved, which was a really humble way of describing himself, but we'll get into that later. Um, we also know from the other three Gospels that John was actually one of Jesus' very first disciples. So it's very likely. Not for sure. I can't stand up here and say this is a, a lock, but I am pretty convinced that John, the writer of this, was one, was one of those two disciples. So he can say with confidence, this is what John the Baptist said, because I was one who heard him say it. Look, the Lamb of God, and when those two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So the first thing is I suspect that John, the writer of this gospel, heard John the Baptist say that. The second thing that's really important, and hits me right between the eyes as a pastor, is that it's evident that John the Baptist understood who Jesus was and understood who he was in comparison. Because what he does in pointing his own disciples to Jesus and saying, that's where you will find life, it so flies in the face of how the world operates. This world that says, you have to make your own name great. You have to build your own kingdom. And you do that by surrounding yourself with people who want to sing your praises, who are giving you thumbs up to anything you post on social media, who are following you, who are, who are like you, who will sing your praises. That's how you progress in this world. And the Baptist understood that he wasn't about making his own name great. He was here to make Christ's, Jesus' name great. He wasn't about building his own kingdom. He was here to build the kingdom of God, just to be a small part in this beautiful, redemptive narrative where Jesus was the central character. John was not the central character. And I can't help but ask myself as a pastor, do I have the same perspective? Am I willing to point people to Jesus even if it means that they might walk away? Am I, do I celebrate when somebody comes to me and says, I really feel like God is calling my family to another place, another state, another assignment, maybe even another church just down the street? Do I celebrate that when they are willing to obey the Spirit's leading even when it costs me, when it costs our church community? And I, and I just, I, I hope the answer will always be yes, where I will celebrate people following Jesus regardless of what it costs me. 
Because if I try to build my own kingdom, if we are trying to make our own name great, we're missing the point. And honestly, we're being false leaders. Thankfully, John the Baptist models the right perspective. He's building the right kingdom. He's focused on the right person. And he's constantly stepping out of the spotlight and pointing people to Jesus and letting him be front and center. When the two disciples heard John say the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. And, and this suggests to me that John is writing to people who are largely Gentile. They're not Jewish, which is why he has to take the time to define his term, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Right? They're just, they're, they're, they're making small talk. Where are you going? And Jesus said, come, and you'll see. He invites them to come with him. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon, so they get to spend from about four in the afternoon through the evening with Jesus. We don't know what they talked about. We don't know what that time looked like. But we see the effects that that time has on these disciples, because Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did after leaving Jesus was to go find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So however these four to six hours that he spent with Jesus were spent, it was enough for him to go, this is the one I've been waiting for. John the Baptist is, a, is an afterthought. He's following Jesus. He's in with Jesus now. And so he brought his brother Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Or to put it into our modern dialect, it, it means like a small pebble or rock. So, so we might say that his name was Rocky. He's given him a nickname. And what's going on here is he's showing a profound understanding of Peter that he shouldn't have having just met him. A profound familiarity with this man. We're going to talk about Jesus' ability to know people in a couple of weeks. So we're not going to go too deep in that right now. But this is Jesus' first two real named disciples here. Andrew and his son Simon, who, have called, who, who will be known as Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So now all of a sudden this narrative picks up and Jesus heads up north to the Sea of Galilee where most of the narrative is going to take place. And finding Philip there, he said to him, follow me. So now we're introduced to another guy named Philip. And Jesus' invitation, I don't believe that Philip is one of those two disciples. This is another person in another place. But what he says to Philip, is really important. These words, follow me, aren't just like, a, hey, come on, let's go for a walk. These are words that a rabbi would use to invite a potential disciple to become a formal disciple. It was an invitation to do life together. Because the point of following a rabbi is that you would go where the rabbi goes, live where the rabbi lives, eat what the rabbi eats, watch what the rabbi does, do what that rabbi does. So you, you basically begin to model your life after the rabbi. If the rabbi jumps over a puddle, you jump over the puddle in the same way. 
If a rabbi moves towards a sick person and prays over them, you move over and you put your hand on that sick person and you pray for them. If a rabbi avoids a certain crowd of people, you avoid that crowd of people. If a rabbi answers somebody's question in a certain way, you, be, you pick that answer up and that becomes the way you answer it. In every way, a disciple's job was to be with the rabbi, spend time with them so that you can be shaped by their proximity, so that you can do what they have been doing. And this is what Jesus is inviting Philip to do. Come, be my disciple. This is a big deal. Come, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip then after having been invited into a discipleship relationship with Jesus, found Nathanael, his brother, and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. Come see. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see for yourself, said Philip. Well, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Ah, here truly is an Israelite in who there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. I can just hear the skepticism in Nathanael's voice. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, I have no idea why that would be enough for Nathaniel, but apparently that response was enough for Nathaniel. I don't know what he was doing under the, the, the fig tree. That he, it was almost Maybe he was asking God to give him a sign, but when Jesus says that, listen to the way that Nathaniel's whole perspective on Jesus shifts. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Those are no light terms. Those aren't, you, can't, you wouldn't throw those out flippantly. Nathaniel is somehow convinced because Jesus says he saw him under the fig tree. And, I, and I, I just picture Jesus with kind of a smile on his face. Like, seriously? That was enough? You ain't seen nothing yet, bud. Because he said, Jesus said to him, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Well, you're going to see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, or in the original language, amen, amen, I tell you. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that is a packed statement that Jesus just said. Because instead of calling himself the Messiah or the Christ, which are both very, very, uh, have a, carry a lot of baggage with a lot of expectations, he chooses the much less known title of Son of Man, which he pulls from the prophet Daniel where Daniel has a vision where he sees one like the Son of Man coming, resplendent, like radiating the light. And this is the picture of the Messiah. And Jesus uses that throughout his public ministry as kind of, this is who I am. I'm one like the Son of Man. But then he says, you will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament where God revealed himself to Jacob, who would one day become known as Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob one night fell asleep, and he had a, a dream where he saw angels ascending and descending in that place. And when he woke up, he said, truly, this is Bethel. This is the house of God, because I saw the angels ascending and descending. 
And what Jesus is saying is, I am the house of God. I am the temple. I am God in your midst. You ain't seen nothing yet. So there's a ton of stuff in each of these interactions. And there's a lot of handles that we could kind of dive deep in any one of these areas. But if there's one area this morning that I really want us to dive deep in, it's this invitation that Jesus gives to Andrew, come and see. Because it's an invitation that uh, Philip gives to Nathaniel as well. When Nathaniel has skepticism about whether or not Jesus really is whom he's claiming to be the Messiah. Are you sure? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And his invitation is come and see. Because prior to this, for John the Baptist's disciples, all they had to go off of was John the Baptist's testimony. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Lamb that will take away the sins of everyone. All they had to to hold on to was John the Baptist's testimony, his faith. But when Jesus says, come and see, they no longer need to hold on to John the Baptist's faith. They get to see for themselves who Jesus really is. Or when Nathaniel is told that Jesus is the Messiah, all he has to hold on to is Philip's faith. All he can do is borrow that until Philip says, no, come and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Come and see. And once he meets Jesus, really meets him, gets to spend some time with him, he himself is convinced. And here's what I have found. I believe that borrowed faith is flimsy faith. Right? When we borrow somebody else's faith, whether it's borrowing it from your parents or borrowing it from a pastor. Some of you borrow your faith from me. I believe this so, you know, You'll believe it too. But that kind of faith is very flimsy. And when the world, which is as out of control as the world has been lately, starts smacking that faith around, it'll fall. And so for John the Baptist's disciples and for Nathaniel, it was terribly important for them to see it for themselves. Of course, this begs the question, well, how do we do that now? Because Jesus isn't walking around in the flesh. We can't just say, hey, Robin, come and see for yourself. Come walk with Jesus. Hey, Ethan, come with me. Come and see. We can't do that because Jesus isn't walking around in the flesh like he was then. So how do we come and see? I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And, and what I keep coming back to is that in this Bible that I'm holding, and many of you are holding, we have four eyewitness testimonies of who Jesus was, of how Jesus interacted with people, of how Jesus responded when people mocked him and when people rejected him, of how he addressed his world's fixation on power on how he dealt with people who wanted him to run for public office and all of those other things. We have these recorded. And if you want to test and see whether Jesus really is who he says he is, then it starts by going for a walk, by spending time in the very Gospels that reveal his heart and reveal his values. Go for a walk with him here. Get to know him. Come and see what he is like. 
But it's not enough just to read about Jesus. Way too many of us have way too much head knowledge. We have way too many things we've heard, but we've never actually put into practice. And when you don't put those things into practice, it's just information. And information does not necessarily lead to transformation. And that's what we're really after, is transformation. So if you really want to know if Jesus is who he said he is, and he can do what he said he can do, then you actually need to put his teaching into practice. Jesus himself says this a little bit later in John's gospel. In John chapter 8, verse 31, he says this. If you are my disciple, then you'll do what I say. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you really want to be my disciple, don't just pay lip service to me. Actually put my teaching into practice. Begin to live it out. Then you'll know whether what I'm telling you is truthful then you'll know whether it is a better way of living than the way that the world is telling you to live. Because the way that I'm going to tell you to live is very contrary to the way the world tells you to live. You know, as I, as I share this story with you of, of Jesus' first disciples interacting with him, I cannot help but identify with John's disciples. Because like them, I spent most of my life, or I spent the beginning of my life living off of borrowed faith. I borrowed my faith from my believing parents. They believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and so they modeled their lives after him, and I borrowed my faith from them. I lived under their roof, so th their values were kind of forced upon me to be my values. They went to church on Sunday, I went to church on Sunday. It wasn't a choice I made. It was a choice they made for me. But I vividly remember the year that I was no longer under their umbrella. It was my sophomore year of college, and I moved out of my parents' house, and I moved into my fraternity house. It's like jumping from the pan into the fire, right? So I'm living in my fraternity house for the first time out from under my parents' roof. For the very first time in my life, I, had a, I, I stood at a crossroads where I no longer had to submit to my parents' values because they were watching over me. Now it was, what do I want to choose to do? How do I want to choose to live? Do I follow my fraternity brothers in kind of living, for having, making the most out of my college years and, and, and you know, parties and, and alcohol and girls and all that kind of stuff? Or am I going to kind of follow in my parents' footsteps and follow Jesus? and submit to the values that I saw him kind of lay out. And I chose, even in that time, I chose to follow Jesus. And I'd love to say it was because I, I believed it 100%. I think in some ways I did it because it set me apart from the rest of my fraternity brothers was my initial choosing. But here's what I found. As I began to put those values into practice, I, I began to experience a freedom that I hadn't experienced when I was under the rigorous rules of my parents. And that year, in my fraternity house, what had been a, a, a religion full of rules began to give way into a relationship with a living God. This was dry and, and, and inflexible 
this relationship was warm and fluid and, and, and alive. And all of a sudden, I found myself wanting to spend time in God's word rather than having to spend time in God's word. I chose to go to church. No, I didn't choose to go to my parents' church. I actually chose a church down the street that was way more kind of hip and cool because I wanted to be able to invite my fraternity brothers to go to church. I didn't want to say, hey, come check out my parents' church. So I actually went and found my own church in that time. This was me beginning to take ownership of my own faith rather than borrowing their faith. It was also a season where I began to ask some of the tough questions that I had just kind of omitted because, you know, my parents didn't ask this question, so why should I ask this question? And I began to ask some really hard questions. And although it was scary, I found that God and his word was always capable of handling those questions. If God can't handle our questions, then he's not much of a God, is he? If he can be overwhelmed by our questions, then he's probably going to be overwhelmed by other things. And I have found that he has never been unable to meet me in the midst of the messiness of my questions or in the messiness of my life. And this began to strengthen my faith so much so that I started getting excited about it, kind of like Philip does when he meets Jesus, so much so that I wanted to go tell other people about it. And so I began to share my faith with my fraternity brothers because I was excited about the Jesus that I was just getting to know. Even though I'd been going to church my whole life, I was starting to get to know Jesus as a sophomore in college. Now I share this because I suspect that some of you listening have gone through a similar season where you found yourself at a crossroads do I kind of follow the values of the world that have been laid out for me, or, or do I follow the values of Jesus that are laid out for me? Do I follow other people, or do I follow Jesus? And some of you chose to follow the world, and some of you chose to follow Jesus, and that decision had a great bearing on the path that you have walked. And I suspect that it has borne fruit in your life, whether for good or for ill, you have tasted and seen the wisdom behind what Jesus taught us. And so as you listen today, you can say, you know what, I, I, I did it the hard way, I learned the hard way, I've still got the scars to show it, but I'm so grateful that I have come to find Jesus through that broken path of me trying to follow myself. Or... I chose to follow Jesus, and he has protected me from so many things. Even when I walked through hard stuff, he was there, and he has always helped me keep my head above the water. And so I am so grateful that Jesus loves me in spite of my imperfections. So I suspect that for some of you, I'm preaching to the choir. But I, I suspect there are some of you who are listening today that are still living off of borrowed faith. Maybe you're borrowing your faith from your parents. They were Christians, so you're going to be a Christian. Maybe you're borrowing faith from a pastor. Maybe it's my faith you're borrowing. Maybe it's Jeff's faith you're borrowing. You're leaning into it, going, well, if they believe, then I'm going to believe, because they seem to believe it. Or maybe you're borrowing somebody else's faith. If that's you, I suspect that your faith has taken a pretty heavy beating over the last year. Because borrowed faith is flimsy faith. 
and we have walked through one horrendous year. We've seen a lot of things that did not go the way that any of us would have ever anticipated. And I wonder if there are some of you who are listening right now whose faith has been so trashed that you even question whether you have any faith at all. And if I'm talking to you, then I have a suggestion for you. Stop borrowing other people's faith. Stop borrowing your parents' faith. Stop leaning on my faith. Stop looking to other people to be your savior. We cannot and never will be able to save you. And instead, do what John's disciples did. Do what Nathaniel did. Don't take somebody else's word for it. Put your your, your little seeds of faith into practice. Get to know the one that we have placed our faith in. Spend time in his word. Just maybe start with John. Begin to spend time reading about how Jesus interacted with other people. Get to know him, but don't just get to know him intellectually. Start putting what he models into practice. Test it. See if it changes anything for you. I believe that Jesus can stand up to your questions. I believe he can stand up to your scrutiny. And what I have seen, what I have experienced, is that when I lean into him and I choose to follow him, my faith grows. And so don't look to me or to Jeff or to anybody else in your life, whether it be a parent or a politician that you put your faith in. Do not make that mistake because you will be let down. Instead, come to the only one who can save you. The one who moved towards you even when you were in open rebellion and says, I love you more than you could ever possibly fathom. Come to him. Put his teaching into practice. Test it. And see, because if you're really his disciple, then you'll do what he says. And then you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So if I've been talking to you, and you have been living off of borrowed faith, I just want to take a moment and I want to pray for you. If you'd bow your heads while the, the worship team comes forward. Father God, I am grateful that you call imperfect people who do not deserve you but you call us to, to follow you. You restore us back into relationship with the Father. You put up with our questions. You put up with our, our disobedience because you love us. And God, I know that there are some who are listening right now whose faith has taken a beating this year. And they just find themselves kind of at their end. And I pray that you would meet them in it. I pray that you would prompt them, Holy Spirit, to be willing to pick up their Bible and to begin to take a walk with Jesus, the physical embodiment of the living God. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would breathe that life into the, the, the word so that it would go from just being words on a page to being 
the breath of life and, and meat that will begin to nourish their weakened faith. I pray, Jesus, that they would come face to face with you and I pray that they would have the courage to begin acting on the, the things you have modeled for them. Turning the other cheek, praying for those who persecute them, moving towards the hurting, speaking up for the voiceless, loving people who aren't all that lovable. And I pray, God, that in the midst of it, they would come to see that you are the one with the words of life, that their faith would grow as it becomes their faith and not somebody else's faith that they're borrowing. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. Dip your heart in the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away in the waves of his mercy as deep cries out to Deep cries out to deep.
If you are carrying something heavily right now, we want to be able to carry it with you. So if you would just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com, you can share any prayer requests you have. If you're going through COVID right now or something else and you need more than just prayer, maybe you need meals brought to you, maybe you need somebody to check in on you, please let us know because that's what we're here to do and we love doing that. Secondly, if you want to give, you can do so from lighthousecommunity.com. You can find a, a button for giving there. You can give online. You can give by text. I'll have that number for you next week. Lastly, as we were singing, I know that I just prayed for those who uh, may have been borrowing faith, but I suspect that there are some of us in here who know people who have been borrowing your faith. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. 
Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody in your life that God has just kind of supernaturally connected you with. And they've been leaning heavily on you. And you find yourself in some ways in the position of John the Baptist, where they're looking to you for hope. And you know that you're gonna, you, you can't be the one who can save them. But you know the one who can. I just want to take a moment and pray for those that God has placed in our lives. And so I'm going to take a moment uh, uh, where I'm going to be silent. But you can fill that silence perhaps with their name. You can say it out loud or if they're in the room, you can say it quietly. But let's just lift up those in prayer that God has placed in our lives who have been borrowing our faith. you know them. You hear every name. You know them more intimately than we know them. You love them more deeply than even we love them. And we lift up our sons and our daughters, our friends, our co-workers, our classmates because they're hurting and their faith is taking a beating. And we just want to stand in the gap and say, Father, would you meet them where they're at? And would you use us like you used John, like you used Philip, to point them to you so that they might come and see that you really are real, that you really do love them, and that you really can use them to radiate your light of hope and love into this hurting world. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.